You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, the PuttCast. Putt is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the PuttCast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis. Welcome to the newest episode of the PuttCast, brought to you by Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency. Hi, I'm Lauren Young, a multi-store pharmacy owner in Illinois and a PUT board member. We are so excited to discuss this legislative session as it wraps up. I know that when December 2020 hit and we all heard about the PCMA versus Rutledge decision, there was a lot of momentum in our corner as independent pharmacy advocates. And we at PUT really wanted to take a few minutes to discuss some of those victories that happened this session. So we will get started with two of our friends from Arizona. We have Mark Bozen and Monique Whitney. As many of you know, Monique Whitney is the executive director of PUT, and we have of one of her fellow colleagues in Arizona, Mark Bozen. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Mark, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about where in Arizona you are and just a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a pharmacist and an attorney. I've been a pharmacist for more than 25 years. I'm a graduate of the University of Arizona College of Pharmacy, uh, and I did pursue law as a second career. I graduated from law school in 2013. Um, my, my career took me in an, in an interesting direction, though, immediately after pharmacy school. When I was a third-year pharmacy student, I was super excited that we had the opportunity to pick an elective. And I thought, ah, oh, finally, we're going to get something interesting to learn here in pharmacy school. And uh, lo and behold, the electives seemed wholly underwhelming. Um, I uh, could pick from uh, antibiotics to uh, oncology and to uh, courses that just seemed way too difficult to be called electives. And uh, I was walking through the student union and I saw a flyer that said, congressional internships, college credit available. And I tell this story because um, in pharmacy school, I knew nothing about politics. I didn't really know the difference between a Republican and a Democrat. I didn't care. I was a proud card carrying, no party. Uh, independent um, voter, and, and I was just going to vote for the best person, and I still believe that today. But um, but I wanted to do this congressional internship thing mostly to get out of a, a difficult elective, and the dean saw right through it. I threw the flyer on the counter, and I said, I want to do this. He says, this is not the College of Political Science. And I said, but, but I want to do this. And he said, why? And I made something up on the spot, but it sounded good. Uh, back then, it was 1992, uh, President Clinton uh, was in office, and they were going to revolutionize health care. It was going to be Obamacare 1.0, and um, it didn't talk much about the pharmacy benefit, didn't talk much about the pharmacist's role, and I said, look, I know full well that if I do an internship at an office, I'm going to be answering the phone and opening the mail, but I'll hear things, I'll learn things, 
and I'll be able to understand the process a little bit better for this profession I want to enter into that may be upturned because of this new healthcare system that no one really knows much about. And he saw right through it and said, all right, I tell you what, you visit with me once a week, you tell me that you learned something that was valuable to your pharmacy career, I'll let you do it. I loved it. Um, I went to Washington, D.C. right after uh, pharmacy school, spent 10 years there working with a number of organizations. One of my favorites was the American Health Quality Association. It was a group of uh, Medicare quality improvement organizations, their trade association, and uh, eventually came back to Arizona to work for a small company called the Apothecary Shops, which would eventually become Avella Specialty Pharmacies, which would eventually be purchased by Optum. Uh, and during that time, I went to law school and opened up my own practice and have been loving practicing pharmacy and doing political public policy at the same time. And I just, I enjoy it. Um, I spend way too much time probably volunteering when I don't have the time to do it, but, but I enjoy it. And I actually had a run at the uh, Arizona House of Representatives. I dipped my toe in the water last election. I um, withdrew. It was a much steeper hill than, than I wanted to climb at the time, but I learned a lot and I'm gonna do it again uh, whenever the timing is right. Maybe it could be as soon as 2022. And so that's me. You asked me to introduce myself. I took up the whole podcast. It's been great. Thanks, everyone, for coming. <laughs> well, I, Mark, I actually had the uh, pleasure of hearing you testify for one of the Arizona uh, committee hearings. And I really think the background as not only the uh, your legal background, but also as a pharmacist really puts you in a perspective because legislators sometimes think that pharmacists don't understand the laws that we're wanting to get through. So I really think that puts Arizona kind of a leg up with having a, a lawyer on their side as an advocate in this. So I'm very happy to hear that. But on that note, so Arizona Senate Bill 1356, it really helped end PBM transaction fees. Now, one of our board members, Dawn Butterfield, vehemently hates transaction fees. And so she was very supportive of Arizona all the way across the country in Florida uh, about this endeavor. So what do you think really helped push this bill? the ending PBM transaction fees through in Arizona? It's a really good question, and I'll be candid with you. When Monique and our lobbyists came to me and said, we want to run this, I was skeptical. I was skeptical because I've been working with the Arizona legislature full-time since 2003, so it's been a while. And we've tried things like this before. And one of the bad habits I got into, and I'll admit it, was going too slow and not pushing hard enough and being polite and waiting our turn and going incrementally. And uh, Monique and, and the lobbyist that, that she hired, Diane McAllister, who's amazing, um, said, no, we're going to do this and we're going to win. And I'm like, all right, I'll help. But, but, but I, I, I managed expectations of the membership, and I'm embarrassed that I, needed, that I tried to do that because we ended up passing this bill uh, almost unanimously. There was one no vote uh, by someone who was never going to vote for it anyway. Nice guy, David Livingston, but, uh, but he just doesn't share our viewpoint on these issues. Um, and, um, and, and, 
And I was, what did it? There were a couple of things that did it. Um, one was our perseverance. We have been there every year since 2003, educating and talking through these issues. I, I would argue that, that the Arizona legislators who are on the health committees and the committees of jurisdiction probably know more about PBMs than most legislators in any other state because every year it's Groundhog Day with them. We teach them what's going on and why it's bad. And, and, and the headwind we face in Arizona is this is the home of PBMs. Um, CVS Caremark is right down the street from my office. Uh, I could ride my bike there from where I am now. Um, the history of CVS Caremark is prescription card systems, the old PCS. And it used to be a great thing for pharmacies. It was great for us. It was built by pharmacists. I know the, the people who built uh, the old PCS, and, and they're horrified at what the industry has become. But, but because their home base is here, because PBMs come from here, and we have such good weather, and we have such friendly pharmacy laws, there are ginormous amounts of pharmacists and technicians who work for the PBMs who, who live here, who work here, whose jobs rely on Express Scripts, CVS, Caremark, and Optum, that, that we always face those headwinds. But what did it for us? It was the constant education. It was the very, very polite, very, very specific, how do you break down what a PBM is in language that, that's understandable to someone who's not a pharmacist, someone who's not a health plan. And, and the other thing that, that we co-opted was, was we knew the objections. We'd been doing this so long, we knew what the PBM's objections were going to be, and we were ready. And, and, and they didn't have any new ones. Their, their game was, was played and it was worn and it was apparent. Um, what do I mean by that? What's the first thing that a health plan or a PBM is going to argue when you, you insert a mandate or, or something like prohibiting transaction fees? Well, if you're not going to let us charge transaction fees, premiums are going to go up. One of my favorite quotes was the bill sponsor in a stakeholder meeting, which is a really nice process here in Arizona, looked at the lobbyist who said the premiums are going to go up, and she said just very matter-of-factly and, and almost exhausted, you know what, his name is Mark as well. You know what, Mark, I, I'm pretty sure it doesn't matter what happens in this room today and what happens in this legislature today or tomorrow or the next day, our premiums are gonna go up next year no matter what. What else do you have? And, and so they're seeing through these things. And, and he was sort of like, well, that was my howitzer. I don't, don't have much else other than <clears throat> we're really good companies and we employ a lot of people and um, we do all these great things for the patients, and, and she saw through that too. It was, you know, they talk about formulary management and talk about um, DUR and, and the clinical work they do, which to a certain extent is, is valuable, and I don't want to disparage any of my colleagues who work in the managed care industry, but, but they also know the frustration. They're patients. They're the ones who we work with and say, ah, this one requires prior authorization. This one's really expensive. This one's not covered. Um, and we have to work with them on alternatives. And, and, and as patients, when you remind the legislators that the experience you had at the pharmacy yesterday, today, and tomorrow are probably directly related to, to some rule that has been put in place by a PBM, and it's frustrating everyone, and there's not much visibility into it. And then finally, the last thing we did is, is there's one publicly facing contract. It's on the internet for everyone to see, and it was OptumRxs. And for those of you who are listening in a state that needs this, um, 
my, my thing I worked into each one of my one or two minute speeches was to read the paragraph from Optum's publicly facing provider manual that talked about transmission fees. And it is ridiculous to hear out loud. And I was stunned that Optum never took it off the website during the Arizona legislative session because the Optum lobbyists were watching me and they knew that was my shtick. And, and the thing that, that really, and I'll, I'll just, I'll talk about a little bit, but, but, the, but the transmission fee section in Optum literally says this. Um, and after the PBMs would say, but they're transparent and everybody signs up for it. And everybody, everybody knows the pharmacists are lying. The pharmacists aren't telling the truth. They know the transmission fees. Well, this is what Optum's contract says. Notwithstanding anything to the contrary in this manual, transmission fees, which may vary in amount, will be incurred subject to applicable regulatory requirements. I use that clause. Subject to applicable regulatory requirements means, hey, the only way you're going to get traction pharmacies is if the legislature uh, gets in the way, because that's the only time Optum's going to do something different on Section L if there's a regulatory requirement. But then it gets worse. Not only are they varying amount, they don't have a thing. It says that excessive or disruptive process inquiries, including but not limited to non-contracted pharmacy status, duplicate payment, remittance requests, excessive member or pharmacy provider grievances will result in higher transaction fees. So, so literally, if I'm going to complain, if I'm going to inquire about it, if I do it too often, my transmission fees go up. How much? I don't know. It just says they're going to go up. And that language, which is the other PBM stick. Look, this is a private contract between two consenting adults. This is America. Last I checked, the pharmacies have a freedom to choose to play or not to play. Every single pharmacy that's here today signed on the dotted line, signed language like this, and said, I want to play. How dare they come complain to you now? And we spent, that's a really hard objection to overcome. And, and we talked about well, when you represent 85% of our, of our market and, and we have to sign these contracts and they're non-negotiable, the provider manual is what it is, uh, we, we were able to be successful. And I credit Monique and Diane for, for not letting me slow them down. We, we needed exponential change, not incremental change, and I was so excited that they were able to do this. Well, I, I love that story, Mark. And so, Monique, what are some insights that you can provide? I know that one thing you like to do at PUT is seek out those legislative rock stars in every state and really find someone who will help push this monumental task up that hill for your independent pharmacies in Arizona. And so who did you tap as the champion this year for this bill? Uh, well, before I answer that, I just want to take a moment to say everything you just heard Mark say, that's why we have him on our team. <laughs> He's so amazing. And I think he understated his role. You know, he's just wonderfully humble like that. Uh, but our our champion is Senator Nancy Bartow. And that what I would like to say about that is that was a relationship that took a little bit of time to develop. But she was and is really the perfect champion because like so many legislators in this country, she's had personal experience, you know, in this realm and she really cares about 
her constituents. And among her constituents are pharmacy owners and patients and people who depend on their insurance, mm -hmm. people who, you know, would be left without resources if their pharmacy was to close. And she really gets that. And she gets that at, uh, you know, not just here in Arizona, but really at a national level. And, and so we feel, I feel very fortunate that Arizona you know, has someone like Senator Bartow. We are grateful for her. I did want to say one other thing too, which is that uh, PUT did play a role in this, but this was the this was actually a PET project, a PET PET project for me because I am in Arizona, and although a lot of the work that we do is nationwide, we hadn't done as much work here in in my backyard. There hasn't been meaningful PBM legislation passed in Arizona in quite some time. Just just because, as Mark pointed out, this is the home of CVS Caremark. Uh, some of the largest mail order pharmacies for PBMs are here. It's a difficult place to be able to, you know, have this conversation and see any kind of success, which was what makes this particular bill such a remarkable thing for the pharmacies in Arizona. Uh, we founded the Arizona Independent Pharmacy Coalition strictly as a way to, to help not just independent pharmacies, but all pharmacies that are dealing with the burden of PBM fees and audits and whatever other abuses out there for them to have a way to be able to speak up and speak out uh, in, in defense of this industry. So that's a bit more than what you were asking for, but uh, that's just a little bit more background on our story here. And you have copious amounts of independent pharmacists in Arizona, right? I think you said six at one point, right? That's this grand coalition that helped make this bill yeah. get passed. That's amazing. That really shows uh, the, grand, the yeah. right, right, right. The grand coalition that is actually, we might actually be up to eight or nine pharmacies now. Uh, Arizona, for everyone who's listening, Arizona Arizona's independent pharmacies have really been decimated under unchecked PBM power here. We have less than 200 independent pharmacies operating and it's getting harder and harder here. So it, it's not like other states. We are the sixth largest state in the country. And like many large states, we have a huge population base in one area. And even this one area has fewer than 25 independent pharmacies for the entirety of the, the Phoenix metro area. So it's uh, it's dire here and it's important that we we get in action. So I'm really, really, really happy that we have and that we have the, the blessing of a champion and a legislature who is willing to listen. It, it didn't happen overnight, but mm -hmm. they are here and they're ready to help. And I know Mark mentioned singling out Optum in that uh, contract clause that he stated, but Monique, is there anything else that you can suggest about how you were able to combat some of those PBM myths and educate the legislators? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. So one thing that really helped was, so doing the work that we've done, you know, here at PUT, which you know, cause you know, you're a member of PUT as well, collecting the evidence that we've collected helped substantially. So we brought evidence to the table of transaction fees and we were able to answer some of the allegations and the points that were made in the stakeholder meetings that you know Mark just referred to. We answered that with evidence. We we listened. We we you know took those opportunities when a point was made to be able to counter that point with actual data versus rhetoric, which was a learning point for me because as Mark pointed out, 
I think in our case, there was more than a little bit of uh, the experience of these lobbyists maybe phoning it in or, or something. I, I think it's hard to tell. But even that, I, I don't want to, you know, make it sound like this was some like easy fight because it was a lot of work. Every single stakeholder meeting, I'd, I'd be in these meetings and I'd be listening to the points that were being made and the arguments that were being made and the attempts at, you know, spinning language and obfuscation and just every every imaginable obstacle that can thrown out but yeah we just you know point by point we countered it right you have to do everything you can to bring that evidence and we found it put that no evidence is too small it kind of goes across the gamut what legislators listen to and so your patients that bring in something from their teacher's retirement fund or their labor union or uh, maybe even their small business, that can connect with different legislators. So definitely keep building your arsenal of information and we'd be happy to help connect that with anyone in your state that PUT networks with. Yeah, and just one other thing I wanna add uh, before we move on to the other amazing stories that we're gonna be talking about in this podcast. We had one pharmacist who was so nervous he wrote out his testimony. I think it was 90, a 90 second testimony. It was so heartfelt. And he was talking about the experience of senior citizens. He's in the Sun City area, a major senior population there. And he was talking about the experience of senior citizens coming into his store and he'll you know, do a price check and he gets charged for the price check. And then he's got a patient who maybe can't afford the medication and they have to walk out. And just the heartbreaking nature of that. He was so nervous to, to talk and he ended up being the favorite every single time he went to speak. He was this enormous hit because he was speaking from the heart. It wasn't flowery. It was just direct, direct experience. I'm a caregiver trying to give care and this is a hindrance and it doesn't just hurt me. It hurts, it hurts my patients. It hurts my community. Um, I would say never underestimate the power of bringing your heart to to your testimony. Absolutely. Uh, Onika and Lauren, I just, I want to emphasize both of your points. One of the challenges that I think pharmacists have is, is that they're trained like scientists and everything needs to be peer reviewed or it's not credible or it's not valid and you can't prove it. Both the federal and state legislators live off of anecdotes. There are so many pieces of legislation that just result from a story. One of my favorite things to talk about with my pharmacy students that I teach is, is there's three places that you're allowed to deliver a prescription. Uh, one is to the patient's home, one is to the prescriber's office where the patient got their care, or to the prescriber's home of that patient. I have no idea what's in there, but I bet you there's a really cool story about one day someone almost died and the only place that wasn't flooded during monsoon season was the doctor's house on the hill and the legislature changed the law. There has to be some really cool story like that because there's no reason why we're delivering prescriptions to the doctor's home except for a cool story like that. Bring your stories. Ken Patel is who Monique is talking about. And Senator Pace, who is not an easy man to impress, said out loud to Ken, that's the most compelling testimony I've ever heard on any topic that I've sat for, and thank you for helping explain it to me. And he was just talking like a regular human being. Do not underestimate the power of, 
of someone who's never been there before and isn't a professional lobbyist and isn't there all the time and just telling the story of what your day is like and sound exhausted because you are. That's what Ken was huge. Uh, that, that made all the difference. Absolutely. And I do remember there being a um, legislator that commented that it was probably the shortest uh, testimonial, but it was one of the most powerful ones he's ever heard in his tenure as a legislator. And that was very inspiring that it was someone on our side that said that. So great job, Arizona. Well, we're going to go across the country now to our friends in Maryland. We have Shireen Joseph and Jim Doyle. Shireen, why don't you let her, I know you've been on before on a podcast, but why don't you remind our uh, listeners exactly what you do for the great state of Maryland? Thanks, Lauren. Um, my name is Sharon Joseph. Uh, I want to thank Pat for having us here today. Um, like uh, she mentioned, I am an independent pharmacy owner here in Baltimore, Maryland. As I was listening to Mark's story, I was just thinking back when I started my pharmacy, opened up my independent pharmacy, and tomorrow it's going to be 12 years. I'm like, Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, That's an amazing like, anniversary. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it's been a, like in the beginning, it was a smooth road, but then, you know, like, it what's the middle of it and for the past couple of years it's been tough for all of us um but i'm also a, a, a board member for ipmd which is independent pharmacies of maryland uh, we are still a newbie uh, organization uh, we formed in 2018 and this was the first year we hired a, a lobbyist so he'll be talking more about our bills and all that going forward uh because he did are an amazing fight for us. And we have like a uh, one of the amazing bills that got passed here in Maryland this year. So that's my intro for this. Well, we're so lucky to have you back with us. And Jim, if you will uh, let our listeners know. So you're the lobbyist for the Maryland pharmacies? Independent pharmacies of Maryland. I'm, I'm Jim Doyle. And just to uh, very briefly give you some of my, back, some of my background, uh, this is the first year, obviously, that I've represented the independent pharmacies. It's, it's, uh, I enjoy it very much. I enjoy working with their group. They're, they're very helpful and cooperative and in, in providing information to me and, and a lot of times quickly. Uh, Shireen and I have probably talked many times on weekends, late at night on Saturday or Sunday evenings, nights, uh, about things that have come up. And it's, it's good to work with a group like that. Um, the, the thing that I, I guess, just in terms of, and I'll be very quick on my background, I've always enjoyed working with um, interesting and difficult uh, kinds of issues and, and intellectually challenging issues. And I would have to say that uh, this whole area of uh, independence, PBMs, insurers, uh, and the rest of it uh, is certainly a very challenging uh, area to work in, and, and that makes it for me personally very interesting. I started out in college as a, as a physics major. I uh, decided uh, after that that I wanted to be a, uh, an attorney. I had a bunch of attorneys in my family. Um, then I went I, and, and I went to the attorney general's office for about 10 years and um, left there, went into private practice, did environmental law for, for a uh, good while. Um, then uh, got into lobbying, and and I'm not the only lobbyist in my family. My father was a lobbyist. My uncle was a lobbyist. My sister is currently a lobbyist. So I always tell people that, you know, if it weren't for the Maryland General Assembly, 
uh, my family would would probably be on uh, you know uh, welfare uh, because we've done <laughs> we've done very well in representing different clients uh, in Annapolis for for many years. But that's probably enough uh, about me. Um, uh, this year, uh, I would say that uh, IPMD uh, has taken uh, a a very aggressive stance in terms of bill introductions in the Maryland General Assembly. Um, we're going to talk maybe primarily about one bill tonight, but there's a bunch of other ones we put in. There was 601 that we'll talk about that dealt with the Rutledge case, uh, but there are, were probably five or six other bills that dealt with Medicaid reimbursements in terms of uh, pharmacists being reimbursed for uh, uh, based on that act plus the professional service fee, which which currently is not being done except for the except in the fee for service program. Um, we had a, a very interesting bill in that would have outlawed a number of additional practices that right now PBMs are involved in, for example, uh, spread pricing, um, uh, copay issues, uh, mail order uh, requirement issues, mail order pharmacy requirement issues, those sorts of things. Um, and some other bills. The primary bill, though, that we were interested in this year was House Bill 601, because that was the bill that that uh, implemented in Maryland the Rutledge decision, which everybody knows came out in December of uh, 2020. And Rutledge, as everybody else, as everybody knows, has greatly expanded the authority of states to regulate PBMs under ERISA plans. And uh, so it was a, a tremendous and, and monumental uh, victory that gave the states uh, significant more authority in terms of regulating PBMs. Uh, the, the problem with uh, Rutledge was that uh, Rutledge said that the states have that authority, but Maryland, probably like a number of other states, had a, a, a detailed insurance statute that by statute prohibited the state from regulating PBMs and ERISA plans. So just because the Supreme Court said you could do it didn't mean that the states had to do it. And in fact, in the case of Maryland, the, the statute prohibited uh, those, uh, the, that kind of regulation from being done under those plans. So the main thing we had to do with 601 was to use that bill to implement Rutledge in the state of Maryland. Uh, and in that, we were uh, particularly uh, uh, successful. Um, the uh, legislature obviously was was interested in the concept that it had a lot more authority to regulate those kinds of plans that it ever thought of uh, that it had in the past. So that bill was passed. It was a major bill, um, but it did a lot of things. It did it did other things besides simply saying that the states could regulate uh, ERISA plans, PBMs uh, under ERISA plans. It has provisions in it that effective January 1 of 2022 will outlaw many uh, of the various fees that PBMs are now able to charge uh, pharmacies. Uh, for example, just reading it, uh, PBMs will be prohibited from um, implementing fees based on performance-based reimbursement related to the adjudication of a claim uh, or an incentive program. Uh, they will not be able to reduce a payment 
for a pharmacy service under a reconciliation process to an effective rate of reimbursement, including generic effective fees, brand effective fees, direct and indirect remuneration fees, or any other reduction or aggregate reduction of payments. Um, so under 601, um, those things will be uh, eliminated uh, in these plans effective January 1 of next year. The bill also effective January 1 of next year will allow uh, MAC appeals uh, in this whole range of, of these uh, PBM ERISA uh, plans. As, you, as I guess a lot of people know, or maybe not because Maryland is, is maybe unique in this, but a lot of times we, we would have pharmacies that filed uh, MAC appeals uh, indicating that, for example, they were not they were not being reimbursed for the cost of their drugs in terms of you know what they could uh, get drugs for at, at a wholesale level, um, and the response always came back from the PBMs and from the insurance administration that under the Maryland statute uh, there really wasn't any appeal on that because uh, these were governed by ERISA. Uh, so that's now done, and and as uh, we interpret the statute, I think it's pretty clear that those kinds of appeals will be allowed effective January one. So um, 601 has done all that. In addition, there are other provisions in 601 uh, that um, at this point do not apply to uh, PBM ERISA plans. Um, and that's because during this whole legislative process, there was a, a real difference of opinion, or more than that, probably a, a battle between what the PBMs thought Rutledge meant and what we independent pharmacies thought Rutledge meant. And the PBMs took a very narrow view of, of Rutledge. We took a much more expansive view of what Rutledge covered. Uh, and very interestingly, toward the end of the session, when all this legislation had moved along, all these amendments to the bill had been, uh, you know, worked out back and forth, the Maryland Attorney General's office came out with an opinion that basically took our version, our, our view of what Rutledge meant and said that you could do a lot more in terms of regulating PBMs uh, than PBMs were indicating. So what the bill contains in it is a provision that says, the Maryland Insurance Administration is now to go back and look at this whole area and see what Rutledge can also now be applied to that up till now and even through 601, it has still not been applied to. So I look at that as another victory under 601 in that now we're going to get back uh, with the opportunity, I think a good opportunity to even expand 601 beyond what it is now. And, and one other thing, which, which I want to mention, I, I did say a few minutes ago that we had introduced, uh, we took a very aggressive stance in introducing legislation. Um, uh, those other bills did not pass. However, they were not defeated. They sat in committee, they had their hearings, but they were not voted on one way or the other. Uh, so they weren't defeated and they, and they didn't win and they didn't pass. But the legislature, the subcommittee that handles those bills has decided that they're going to do a summer study of those bills, uh, which is in, its, in itself a, a victory of sorts because uh, they're saying, in effect, you know, we're not letting these things die. 
we think there's enough merit to them that we need to look into the details of these bills. As you know, during the session, there's a hell of a lot of bills that everybody's looking at. And this will give us the opportunity to take these other four, five, six bills and to deal with them in the committee on a on a more detailed basis. So uh, I think that uh, uh, considering everything in 601 and all the ramifications of that, uh, it was for uh, IPMD a very, very significant victory this year. But we still oh, have a long way to go. And the thing is, you know, as I think we talked about before, um, you know, this is a very complicated and uh, wide ranging subject. Um, and uh, there's a lot to it, a lot of pieces to it. So we're, we're, we're attacking it uh, bit by bit. And as long as we're making progress, uh, I think that's a great thing. Oh, absolutely. And it seems like you mentioned it already, but it's very important for our listeners to know that sometimes you don't get all of those goals accomplished during the spring session, but there are legislators that are committed to coming back, like you mentioned, in the summer or maybe even in a fall veto session. So it's definitely important that even when that spring session ends, you continue discussing your bills, your priorities, your objectives with your legislators. Definitely invite them into your store to try to get them connected to you, their constituents, your patients, all of yes, that. And that, exactly. that helps yeah. you. And one of the good things we have in Maryland is that we have on the relevant committees a lot of, uh, on the Senate side and the House side, a lot of members that are very sympathetic, empathetic toward independent pharmacies. The, the big hang up in terms of getting things done is that it, it's been difficult up till now to tell them what needs to be done because there are so many aspects of this. So uh, that's what we're trying to do is put together um, ideas and, and legislation that you know accomplishes that. But it's it's very difficult because there are many are, there are so many pieces to all of this. Absolutely. It's a very complicated puzzle. And that's why it's going to take all of us to get these bills through and to get all of our objectives met. Now, Shireen, I just wanted to know as a pharmacist, which of the legislators would you suggest is one of your legislative rock stars. I know that hmm. Nick Kipke is one of my favorite to watch because uh, he likes to tell PCMA that they are blatantly being dishonest <laughs> in public during your committee hearings. So that is something I loudly and proudly cheer on my friends in Maryland when I hear that. But what are some legislative rock stars that you guys have found to connect with your pharmacists in Maryland? So this year, there were many, to be honest. Uh, Nick Kipke, obviously, he is the, he's the one who introduced many of our bills. Susan Krebs was there. Um, but our committee chair, um, Cullis and Bob, um, she was really, you know, like on top of it because the past couple of years, I think now she kind of understands where we are coming from. And like she is, you know, more understanding of the, our situation. So she really wants to help. So she has come around a lot. And also on the Senate side, Senator Dolores Kelly. She, she is the lead. Yeah, they both were like really because like like uh, Jim said, this was like like a one liner bill. But then they added all these extra, you know, legislation to it. We were like, there's no way this is going to pass, you know, but this really surprised us, you know, passing it both unanimously in the House and in the Senate. 
um, like the DEIR fees, um, the you know definition of a purchaser, all that you know they add a lot of other elements to this bill, making you know giving it more meat you know than that than we intended. So we were actually really surprised that it passed. Yeah. That, that's a very welcome uh, surprise, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, and I would add, you know, we have both. Uh, Republican and Democratic support for a lot of this. Uh, it's not a party issue, yeah. really. And even um, in, in terms of Rutledge and uh, expanding this to 601, we had the Maryland Attorney General who filed an uh, amicus brief regarding the Rutledge case, in which he he brought up some issues such as unfair competition and and steering and those kinds of things on behalf of the larger uh, uh, pharmacies and PBMs, uh, suggesting, strongly uh, indicating that the Supreme Court should take that Rutledge case. And uh, there were serious issues involved in this whole field. I fully intend to share that information with the Illinois Attorney General, because he was also one of the attorneys general that signed on to that same support for Yes the state of Arkansas. So, and like you mentioned, it is a bipartisan effort that we're finding in many states to get this passed. There can be no party lines in this decision. It is for all, it's for the betterment of all patients across the state. So there should be no legislators sitting on the sidelines here. Yeah. And like Mark mentioned, um, I think uh, during our testimonies, we were also like, you know, we tried to bring real stories and like what is really happening to us. Even like us personally, like a lot of our, our pharmacies, uh, like one of the pharmacists closed her store this year. She came on to testify, you know, the, you know, the fight she, she had to, you know, finally she had to give up. And many of our pharmacists who had to like take loan on their houses, you know, max out on their credit cards, like yeah. all those are real things that's happening. So we, you know, we bought all those stories. And I think that really, you know, help them or like accord in that room and like made them think. Yeah. So being Absolutely. real and bringing like, you know, the real time stories really helps. Right. Absolutely. Because PCMA stops at nothing to really uh, try to cast shade and cast doubt on all of the stories that you're mentioning. I know that yeah. uh, Nicholas Kipke even mentioned the PCMA lobbyists that were discussing and saying, you know, oh, these independent pharmacies are not uh, really going out of business. There's pharmacies popping all up all over the country, you know, things like that. It is not our fault as independent business owners that there are other independent business owners opening new stores. That does not make our stories any less true. And so that's really something that Maryland really helped get across that these are not made up stories. These are real people, real daily yeah. fights going on. Yeah, yeah and at, at one point, I think uh, one of the PCML reps, she said, uh, we are even willing to sit down and talk with the people who testified to, you know, listen to them, to hear from their side. You know, that's the first time I'm, you know, hearing them say something like that <laughs> <laughs> for a change. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Well, you guys should be very, very proud. And Jim, I really think that that's amazing as like they mentioned the first year that you were a lobbyist for this organization, not that you hadn't had experience with lobbying before, but this is just a, a different animal to wrap your arms around. This, this fight has so many different directions. And just whenever you think that you have one set of circumstances controlled, then another group seems to pop up that right. uh, you right. need to educate, I guess is probably right. the best phrase. And we're, you know, 
and everybody was under hand. Certainly we were under handicap this year with the zoom, you know, with the mm-hmm. COVID and everything being done by zoom, no person to person interaction uh, made things even more difficult. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the opposition is, is well organized, well funded. Uh, as Mark said before, this has always been amazing to me. You know, they always come back with, with anything you present, they always come back with, well, you know, this is going to raise costs. We're saving you all this money. And uh, this is just going to uh, cut into that. I would, unless I've missed it, you know, that's all I hear from, from, from them ever is that they're saving us all this money. I have never seen any study or anything that shows me how much money they're saving and how any of this stuff is going to cut into it. All I hear is, yeah, we're saving you money. Take our word for it. We're saving you money. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we know not to buy into those types of stories. So, uh, Jim, exactly. I, do have, I do have one question for you as a lobbyist. So, and as a non-pharmacist myself, I know that when I am trying to educate legislators, they try to throw up roadblocks about pharma. You know, that seems to be a big talking point about how pharma is actually the cause of all these high drug prices. Is there any suggestions or tips that you could give our listeners, our pharmacy listeners, as to how they can combat that with legislators? You know, uh, I'm not not sure I can, because that issue of of the pharma being, you know, the the cause of the prices, Mm -hmm. uh, that never came up uh, in any of the discussions of the bills. that was just not a uh, not a topic that came up, um, and I thought it would have because I had read, you know, I've I've read the stories about that that it, that's really the, mm-hmm. the cause of the thing. But uh, I, I would have thought maybe that some of the legislators would have raised it, but it it, it just did not come up. Lauren, Lauren, I came up in Arizona quite frequently. That when PCMA and the health plans felt like they were losing, they tried to shift the. A responsibility. Hey, hey, you're looking for a solution, and, and we're not the right people. And um, one of the things that that didn't require much from us, uh, meaning the pharmacy side, was the acknowledgement by the legislators that oh no, we know full well there's another issue that needs to be dealt with, and we'll run some bills on a later date in a different stakeholder meeting to deal with the price of drugs and and are we getting our, our money's worth, are we getting ripped off? That's an issue for a different committee, a different time. We're, and, and we all just sat there and said, yep, that's part of the problem mm-hmm. that can be addressed separately, but you're still part of the problem and we've got the time and energy to deal with you right now. And, and I think that's important because pharmacists are gonna lose their credibility if they try to place all the blame on one part of the drug distribution system. And, and so we didn't try to defend the pharmaceutical manufacturers. What we did say is, it ain't us. The people who are lying in their pockets with, with margin ain't us. And here's our data to show you. And, and that's how we handled it. it it's, it's not mutually exclusive. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's the right approach. And I think one of the things I would like to have, Mark, and I don't know, you know, I was able to get a little bit of it, but... Um, it, it seems like it's difficult. There, there's not a lot of transparency on on um, how much how much money PBMs really make. I mean, a tremendous. So there was a Wall Street Journal thing I saw before on you know accounting and EBITDA, and and apparently they they do extremely extremely well, even better 
a lot of the PBMs do better than the uh, insurance companies that you know maybe have bought them. Uh, they actually make more money than than the insurers. But it would be you know one of the things I am trying to to get more information on is exactly how well PBMs are doing. How much money if, if they're saving all this money? Uh, I, you know I'd like to see it. I'd like to see how much money they're taking out of the system, uh, which which certainly doesn't go to savings. I think we all know they're making too much money. I think that's the. the I'd like to be able to quantify it some. You know, <laughs> yes. you know, you know um, Jim. It's funny because we we've been trying to track that number down at Putt, and uh, the last reliable number that we are that we could find comes from 2018, and it's estimated 370 billion, which is a reliable number given that the prescription drug market is around 400 billion. But, but what's so tricky is trying to define exactly what that 370 billion is given that PBMs yeah. engage in rebates and yeah. you know, yeah. they consider it's, themselves it's, buyers and sellers of drugs too. It's, it's very squishy. I just have not been able to really get my hands around, about, around it other mm-hmm. than I know they make a hell of a lot of money. Totally by design. Totally by design. (laughs) That's right. Well, Shireen and Jim, congratulations on the work that you both put in and all of your uh, compatriots in Maryland for all the hard work on getting HB601 passed. And then hopefully we'll be able to get a follow up on some of the additional bills that the legislature is working on soon in Maryland. Thank Thank you. Thank you. And we are going to bring up Miguel Rodriguez, one of our great friends at PUT, and he is down in the great state of Texas with American Pharmacies and the Texas Business Council. Miguel, how are you doing? Yes, Lauren, thanks so much for uh, inviting me to this program. Those were fantastic stories. And, uh, you know, I, I see what I'm, I'm lucky enough to be involved in, in a uh, a few states in, in trying to advance the ball in PBM reform. And I always wonder what's happening in other states. And, and what I'm hearing is that there's just an amazing uh, momentum that's building across the country for PBM reform, uh, for uh, ensuring that independent pharmacy owners can continue to practice and serve their patients and do it in a way that barely compensates them and lets them support their family and, and remain part of their community. So this is really, you know, a, a great work that we're involved in and, and I'm happy to be a part of it. It makes me uh, happy to go to work every day to, to work on these kind of issues. Um, yeah, well, I, I'll tell you a little bit about myself uh, just for um, very briefly. Uh, so I'm an attorney. I'm general counsel for American Pharmacies and we're a cooperative that's owned by independent pharmacies uh, now in 35 states, uh, about 700 of them. And uh, because we're owned by independent pharmacies, we really have as our core mission to uh, make sure that we listen to what's happening with independent pharmacy owners and their businesses, what's affecting them for good or, or bad. And, and if it's for bad, how do we, what can we do to help? And so advocacy has been a huge part of our mission and I'm happy to, to be part of that program that we have. And in Texas, uh, 
you know, I've been practicing law since uh, 1998, so it's been a few years. And I initially practiced in something totally unrelated to pharmacy law. You know, I didn't go to law school to become someone that works in the area of pharmacy law all the time. I, I started off in private commercial litigation. And, and uh, one, one day, American Pharmacies came in as a client. And my predecessor in my current position uh, started telling me that there's these things called pharmacy benefit managers. I had never heard of them before. This is about 15, before my kids were born. So I have a 15-year-old, and this was a couple of years before that. So this was many years ago. I'd heard for the first time that there's something called PBM out there. And I started learning about uh, the practices, the business of pharmacy, and the problems that from not just PBMs, that's not the only challenge that pharmacies face, there's regulatory challenges and federal and state uh, issues. And, and, and Mark, who, who went to pharmacy school and became a lawyer, that's pretty much what most pharmacists need to do nowadays. They have to be just about practicing lawyers to stay in business and to, to stay on top of things. Uh, so it's a really uh, a challenging, but, but as I see it, very rewarding field to be in uh, because these are the guys that are out there caring for their patients and doing the things that um, medical providers want to do, which is help people. So, so it's a really good um, cause to be fighting for. In Texas, uh, uh, I've been working in, we, we meet every other year in Texas. So I've been working on about five different sessions here in Texas. And I remember going to representatives offices years ago and, and they didn't know what a PBM was either. And it, it's taken so long to get to a point where I think we are now where you go into a, a representative's office and they understand what a PBM is and they know, they may not know every detail about it, but they know there's something wrong with uh, some of the practices that are going on. And so it's nice that, that after all the, the time of, of trying to educate, and, and it's I'm sure true in every state, there's an uh, education aspect of it, of the going to these uh, representatives who are voting on this legislation and trying to educate them on these issues in a way that is um, makes sense. Now, these, these legislators, they're dealing with thousands, hundreds and thousands of different issues, different bills that have nothing to do with pharmacy. And they have to be uh, many experts on these different areas. So going into the, uh, these offices and making sure they understand what it is, what a PBM is and what the issue you're bringing to their uh, table that day is and, and why it's important. Uh, you got to do it quickly and you can try to do it as uh, efficiently as you can because they're busy and, and they got a lot of other, of other things to worry about. Uh, so luckily we, we've done some great stuff here in Texas. We did some MAC reform and passed legislations, audit bills, um, transaction fee bans, uh, prompt pay. Uh, even we even did some bills in, in the past where we've increased the penalties for burglarizing pharmacies. There's a huge wave of uh, of folks that were breaking into pharmacies and burglarizing them for their um, controlled substances. And so we passed some bills in that area. And in this this uh, session, uh, which just ended, we worked on a couple of very um, wide-ranging bills. And I'm happy to say one of them the governor signed and the other one is on his desk awaiting signature. Um, the one that's been signed is our House Bill 1763, mm -hmm. uh, which does several things. It bans um, post-adjudication fees. It requires uh, affiliate 
pharmacies to be reimbursed at the same rate as non-affiliate providers. So when the PBM uh, owns the pharmacy, they can't increase the reimbursement for uh, their affiliate over the non-affiliate. It also uh, makes sure that the PBM can't interfere with the pharmacy's ability to mail or deliver drugs to their patients. There's been a lot of, a couple of PBMs had started placing big limits on the ability of pharmacies to even do something simple, as simple as home delivery of medicine. And they would require them to credit as a mail order pharmacy in order to do that simple task. Uh, so we were able to succeed in, in um, ensuring that a pharmacy could continue to mail and deliver their drugs. And then uh, it also um, prevents a PBM from requiring a pharmacy to undergo accreditations over and above what the federal law or state law requires or a manufacturer requires. And there's been a lot of wave, not only in mail order, but in the specialty field of uh, preventing a pharmacy, even though they're, it's perfectly legal for them to obtain and dispense a medicine to uh, throw a barrier in front of them and say that they have to have a special accreditation in order to dispense a drug that they've been dispensing their entire practice. Um, so that's been a, uh, another important aspect of it. In fact, we, we had some great testimony from a pharmacist uh, who was who testifying in support of uh, this, uh, this prohibition on these accreditations. And, and his testimony was saying that he had gone through and jumped through all the hoops of accreditation, spent all the money that you need to get URAC accredited. And even after all those things, they would not let him into the network and will not let him dispense uh, the medicine. Uh, so it was, it was sort of a, they kept moving the goalpost on, on him and his pharmacy uh, to where even with the additional accreditations, they weren't allowed to uh, do what the PBM didn't want them to do, which was to c compete with their own pharmacies, uh, which is really the heart of the matter. Uh, so, so that those are uh, those are all now part of uh, Texas law in in um, in HB 1763. The governor signed that one, and the other bill, which I'm uh, have my fingers crossed, will make its way and, and either be signed by the governor or or the time will elapse till off to become law without signature is an anti-steering bill we have. And that bill, and it's passed the House, passed the Senate, um, that bill will prevent PBM or health plan from favoring the pharmacy they own over another pharmacy in any way. And so uh, at its heart, we know, uh, and I hear this story all the time of pharmacies um, being approached by a patient who they've been serving for years, even maybe even generations. And, uh, uh, they're approached where the, the patient brings the letter and saying, I got to go to the mail order pharmacy. I just got a letter from my PBM that said that if I want to get this drug and continue to get it, the only way it's going to be covered is if I go to mail order. And uh, this is breaking the bonds that have developed over years between patient and provider and forcing them to go instead of down the block to their local pharmacy to, to wait for some far away mail order uh, operation to ship them their medicine from a stranger. So it's uh, it's now been passed uh, by House and Senate and awaiting the signature of the um, of the governor. Those are great bills. And, and each of them have uh, a tremendous story to tell in terms of how uh, we went from uh, their introduction to uh, 
to getting through the chambers and one of them, the signature. Um, but some of the most important things that uh, are important to tell from my perspective is, uh, and I've heard it from others, is the importance of really effective sponsors. Um, the, the authors and sponsors of this legislation, they're gonna get hammered. Their office is gonna get hammered by the opposition lobbyists. And they're gonna be challenged in all sorts of ways. And then they'll be told stories about what the bill, you know, these, the boogeyman of increased cost and, and all these other things. And um, because of the challenges and the importance of this legislation, the more important, the bigger the challenge, uh, they, they need to be rock solid supporters of the bill. And so they have to be important um, uh, advocates for the bill, not only uh, just to the opposition when they come in their office, but to their colleagues in the House or Senate so they can persuade their, their colleagues of the importance of the bill. Ideally, they're highly, uh, they're well placed as, as uh, chairs of committees that are, that are the key committees that the bill will go through. For example, 1763 uh, was authored by the chair of the Committee of Insurance in the House. So it was a, a fantastic representative, uh, Tom Oliverson himself, uh, a doctor. Uh, he knows the, the uh, challenges of being a healthcare provider. And in, in, uh, although he's not a pharmacist, he understands very well those challenges. And he was a rock solid and is a rock solid supporter of the cause and and defended that bill and and did what it took to make sure it got across the finish line. And in the Senate, we it was uh, sponsored on that chamber by Brian Hughes, uh, who's uh, an attorney himself. Uh, he has his own committee of state affairs here in Texas, but uh, even though this bill did not go through that committee, um, he was a staunch supporter and very active. Uh, he, he's actively supporting the bill as opposed to simply uh, sticking the name on it and letting it uh, just go through the process. So great authors and sponsors. And, and then we also had testimony from our local pharmacists. I think we heard uh, uh, some statements earlier about uh, Ken Patel in Arizona and, his, and the reaction he received from the, the uh, committee members. Uh, we had a couple of great pharmacists here in, in Texas, pharmacy owners. One, John Hickman, who's mm -hmm. an owner of Dyer Drug in Farmersville, Texas, and Steve Hofford, who owns Magnolia Pharmacy in Magnolia, Texas. And they came in and told their stories and they told it from the heart. That these, these are concepts I've heard already from others today, but they told in, in the amount of attention when these guys, when, when the pharmacy owners are in there in a committee hearing and they're telling their story, uh, they are the stars and they're the center of attention in that room because unlike a lobbyist, unlike me, even a, a lawyer, I'm not a pharmacy owner. And, and, and while I can, I can uh, help tell the story from a different perspective, nothing beats uh, the, the pharmacy owner telling the story of how it's affecting them and their patients and how they do business and their, and their business itself. So uh, that's very important. And, and the other thing I thought was very effective here in Texas was was getting the the grassroots support of the pharmacy community. Okay, nothing was more important than when when the lobby team is going into a representative's office, visiting with the representative or their staff about a bill. That the staff or or the representative is saying, "Yeah, I just got a call from a pharmacist in my in my district that said 
the same thing that worked telling them uh, in in, uh, in their in front of them in their office. And it's this one-two punch. Uh, they're hearing it from their constituents back home. They know their constituents. They listen to these great uh, salt of the earth folks that own these pharmacies. These guys employ people in the community. They treat and, and care for people in the community. They sponsor the local Little League team. Uh, these are the folks that are, are listened to the most. And when, when they call their representative up and say, this is an issue that's happening, and then very shortly after, or maybe even the same day, uh, um, effective lobbying team and, and other government affairs types come into the office with the nuts and bolts of how we get a, a, the bill from A to Z. Um, that, that is an important one-two punch that is just so effective. Um, oh, absolutely. So and, and there was also in Texas several other members of the healthcare team. I know there was an oncologist that spoke and her testimony was very, very powerful in the Senate. Absolutely, Dr. Pat, uh, fantastic uh, testimony, very compelling. She testified, for example, that her uh, oncology business was losing a million dollars a month in DIR fees. And uh, to, to be able to put a dollar figure in front of a committee of that magnitude to demonstrate how impactful these uh, post-adjudication fees are was just tremendous. And, and she was not a, uh, there, there's a pharmacy practice, a pharmacy that's involved in her oncology practice, but she's also, she's speaking from a whole different subset of those involved in this, which are the medical, the, the physician community and, mm -hmm. and uh, speaking about the impact on patients and, and yeah, fantastic testimony and a great ally. Um, getting allies is very important in, in having someone like physician, a physician practice who's telling another physician. Sometimes there's a lot of uh, physician uh, representatives and senators out there. And so when they see a physician come in and testify, they can definitely relate to them. Um, so yeah, great point, Lauren. She was a great, uh, fantastic testimony. So in the other bills that you have been able to pass in Texas, one of the things that we hear about in other states that have been successful in passing bills is the enforcement aspect of bills. You know, sometimes they finally get that bill passed. They're so excited about that. And then they don't see the changes happening because the state or the certain agency isn't enforcing it. Is there anything that you've been able to see in Texas or give our legislators or our listeners in other states kind of some tips on how to make sure that enforcement is really enacted. Yeah, well, that's a big part of it. Um, getting the law in the books is a huge challenge and then getting it enforced is a whole separate ball game. And it's uh, not easy. I think uh, the Rutledge decision is going to open a lot of doors in enforcement. Mm -hmm. And I was excited to hear about Maryland uh, on its own initiative, taking a, the or or maybe at, on the prompting of uh, the pharmacy community, uh, examining the effect that the Rutledge decision has on their own enforcement practices. That's not something that I've seen done here in Texas. I think it would be very useful. Uh, as, as that sparked an idea in my mind. I'm glad I heard it. Uh, that's a great idea. And uh, but yeah, I think I think. Uh, decisions like Rutledge are going to be really important. Now, there's there's um, 
also private actions. You know, some of these things were uh, the laws that were passing, for example, a, a ban on post adjudication fees. Uh, if those end up being levied even after this law is passed, uh, the Department of Insurance, the local regulator, uh, could could you can raise a complaint to them and, and get them to step in. I would also consider that if they're charged a breach of contract, you can't um, if you're going to charge an illegal fee, uh, it could also be a breach of contract. I think there's an opportunity with these laws being passed for the pharmacy owner to uh, enter the courtroom themselves to try to challenge the practice or maybe join forces with others to do so. Um, there's some litigation right now challenging uh, MAC reimbursements against Optum across the country. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a friend of PUD as well, Mr. Uh, Mark Cooker, is, I know has uh, spoken to your organization a few times and, and he's doing it in the courtroom. Uh, so laws being passed and those are being forced in the courts. So I, th I think, um, that's going to, time will tell how effective the enforcement mechanism is, uh, but getting the, the law in the books, that's the necessary first step. You got to do that part before you can even think about enforcement. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's going to be where we're going to have our next series of big battles is going to be on the enforcement side. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Miguel, great job in Texas. And also the testimony that you gave in Wisconsin was very inspiring as well. And they had a successful bill pass last session. It got signed into law in 2021. But really, your advocacy in multiple states is very inspiring to watch. Yeah, you might be thinking of Michigan, but yeah, it was, it was uh, yeah, we, we got a bill there in Michigan that's I mean, to me, it's one I'm so excited about. It's a fantastic bill, HB 4348, and it, it's passed the House now. And it, it really has um, just what I call the greatest hits of um, pharmacy uh, <laughs> legislation and, and PBM reform legislation. It's just really got a lot of the elements, things that, that we're hearing today. Uh, pretty much all of them are are in some way or the other in that bill. So. It's a great bill. Well, thank you all so much for joining us tonight. It's been so exciting to break down some of these different bills and see what worked well in your states and how we can help our members across the country recreate that success. So we are so grateful to all the work that you all do uh, in your states. And uh, again, I know our members are very grateful for your advocacy as well. We truly appreciate it. Don't forget, this year's PUP Political Summit is happening this September 17th and 18th in Orlando, Florida. It's an in-person event, so get ready to see everyone. There's also a virtual component for those who would like to attend online. Visit truthrx.org to register and learn more. Have a great night.